0: Okay, good morning and welcome everyone to the Catechesis Colloquium. Uh, We are in for a wonderful day. Um, I want to make just a few announcements uh, and then we'll get right into it. We've got a full day ahead of us. Um, First of all, just a bit about the Institute of Renewal of Christian Catechesis. Um, I'm the director, Alex Fogelman. And this is a training and research organization, both for pastors and for scholars, those who are interested in uh, developing better, uh, more theologically, historically robust models of catechesis within the local parish. Um, So there's a a number of folks uh, who I also want to point to today that are here with us, Um, first of all, uh, Paul Guttaker is helping us out today. Paul's the director of the Brazos Fellows. The Brazos Fellows is a nine-month uh, graduate fellows program that's run uh, out of Christ Church here. Uh, so Paul and the fellows are helping us today with with hospitality and, and arranging things and just making everything work well. But uh, I would encourage you to talk with Paul at some point today about the fellows program. It's a phenomenal catechetical model Uh, that um, is really able to bring together a lot of things that we talk about in catechesis into a a nice coherent program. So uh, find out more about that from Paul. Also here with us is Laven Duke uh, from Neshoda House. Uh, And if you don't see Laven, you'll see the signs downstairs. So Laven is a representative of Neshoda House. There's a number of Neshota folks here with us today, including Father Lee. And uh, Hans will be taking up a post there starting this year. Um, so that's, uh, that's another good place to be. Also here with us, uh, I'm happy to say, is Greg Peters. Uh, Greg is uh, coming to us from the Torrey Institute out in California and also has a, some kind of post at Nishota. Um, and I'm happy to announce also that our next year's colloquium will be with Greg Peters. And that'll be out in San Francisco. And uh, we're happy to have him here with us today. We've got books available downstairs for purchase, both from Hans and from Greg Peters. You can get those at very, very discounted prices. Uh, so I encourage you to go ahead and just get all of them. You know, they make <laughs> good gifts. Don't make us ship them back. We want, to, we want you to have them all. Um, so, uh, and then today for, for our format today, uh, Hans will be giving, uh, leading us through four presentations today, well, two in the morning and two in the afternoon. Um, after each one, we'll have responses from both Sean McCain, who's coming to us from Austin, Resurrection South Austin. He's the rector there, uh, and also affiliated with the Always Forward uh, Church Planning Initiative podcast, which is through the ACNA. And then Father Lee Nelson is director here at Christ Church. Um, he'll also be responding uh, today as well. And Father Lee's been very involved in the Catechesis Task Force, putting together the ACNA Catechism, much many other things, uh, both passionate about church planning and catechesis. Uh, so if you don't know them, I would invite you to say hello to them at some point today. Uh, but th- they'll give... Um, Informal responses after each of Hans's uh, presentations, and will lead us into uh, into a discussion of that. A few formalities: bathrooms, very important, are downstairs by the welcome table where where we came in. There's also some through those doors and to the left. There, so that's the main main places you'll go for bathrooms. And then again, as I mentioned, downstairs, no drinks up. Here we'll have coffee breaks after this first session, then we'll have lunch, Helberg's barbecue, uh, which is wonderful, and and then we'll have our third session, another break, uh, and then our fourth session, and uh, we'll have evening prayer uh, again. So thank you for being with us. Uh, Please uh, join me in welcoming Hans. We're so glad to have you here. Thanks for being with us.
1: So I was just gonna say, last time I was in this building, um, I think it was uh, uh, last year at Lent as well. Um, uh, In any case, last time I was here, uh, this building was still kind of a mess. And I remember uh, Father Lee uh, taking me through the building. Uh, It certainly did have promise, but it needed a lot of work. And it's all been done, it's quite amazing. And it looks absolutely beautiful. Uh, So yeah, you're quite privileged having this, congratulations. Um, Thanks again to uh, Alex uh, for inviting me uh, to be here today with you. Um, Alex is just uh, one proud instance, or at least for me, it does me me proud uh, to have Alex as a graduate of uh, Regent College and being here and seeing what he's all doing with the uh, Institute for, uh, for Catechetical Renewal. I know that's not the exact title, Alex, but I can't quite dream it up exactly. Um, but it's, um, I'm very very grateful for all the work that Alex is doing in that and I'm also very grateful for you inviting me um, to be the uh, first speaker for, uh, for your um, institute here. Um, we're going to be talking today about the topic of catechesis as mystagogy. And um, as Alex mentioned, there are four, four presentations Essentially, the two in the morning are introductory. Um, we're going to be talking first about um, the purpose of catechesis uh, this morning in the first session. And um, we're going to look at some developments in modernity in the second session. And those two um, sessions together are more or less introductory. And then um, this afternoon we're going to be looking at uh, memorization, the role of memorization, um, And uh, that's hard work. (laughs) And then the last session, um, we're going to be reflecting special scripture, biblical interpretation, and what what the role of scripture has to uh, do with uh, catechesis. So the first session this morning (coughs) is um, the purpose of catechesis and theology. Why is it that we're doing catechesis Why is it that we're also doing theology? Or as Alex probably would ask himself the question, why am I setting up this institute for renewal of Christian catechesis? Why am I doing this? What's the purpose? What's the telos? There's something important, obviously, at stake in this question. After all, catechesis, and also theology more broadly, isn't like anything else that we get involved in. Catechesis, the teaching of the Christian basics in the church, as well as theology, which in some sense you could say is a follow-up or a continuation of catechesis for advanced learners, both of those are significantly unlike anything else. They both aim directly at our ultimate purpose or telos. Think of it this way, when you study anatomy, Presumably, you're studying the bodily structure not just for its own sake, but for the sake of something more important. Perhaps you want to become a doctor or a physiotherapist. It's the same when you study music theory. Most likely, you're learning it not just because you're interested in the finer details of uh, musical intervals, the chromatic scale, the various modes of Music notation. Now you're learning these things so that you can play duets with your friend or so that you can compose new songs. Well, catechesis isn't like that. Catechesis doesn't aim at anything else. Catechesis introduces students directly to their final end or purpose eternal worship of God seeing God face-to-face in the beatific vision. catechesis initiates students to the enjoyment of God himself. Now, to be sure, in a true sense, all of life here on earth, including anatomy lessons and including music theory, does aim at the eternal enjoyment of God. That's why St. Paul talks about our everyday lives as worship. We present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Romans 12. All human activity aims indirectly at the enjoyment of God. Catechesis, however, does this in a direct fashion. Catechesis is a form of apprenticeship. The master craftsman takes his apprentice by the hand and initiates him into the skills of knowing God. Catechesis, therefore, is about apprenticeship. It's about initiation. It is, to stick with the title for today's lectures or class uh, sessions, it's about mystagogy. It's about training people in the skills of life, a life that is lived in faith, hope, and love. It's about training for the beatific vision. Now to many Christians, this truth will appear self-evident. What greater good can we possibly look forward to than the enjoyment of God himself in the beatific vision? So, of course, we would shape the structure of our catechesis in line with that ultimate purpose. Still, it's worth reflecting more carefully on the relationship between catechesis and our ultimate aim of beatific vision. That's basically what I want to do in this first talk. How is it that catechesis relates to the telos or the purpose of our eternal vision? Of God. Now, the contemporary values of our society are not the same as those of our forebears. Otherworldliness, aversion to materiality, and ascetic self denial characterized an outlook that our society simply no longer recognizes as its own. Instead, It's the earth and its viability, the material well-being of all its inhabitants, and justice in human relationships that have become today's primary concerns. With that change in values, it's good to ask ourselves once again the question of the aim of catechesis. What are we trying to do here? What are we aiming for? Are we training for the enjoyment of God or are we setting our sights on other, more this worldly, fulfillments of human desire? It's important to put these questions up front because if we don't get the end or the telos of catechesis properly in view, our teaching is similarly going to be skewed. For the past several years, I've worked on the doctrine of the beatific vision, seeing God in the hereafter. What I found interesting is that when people ask me what I've been working on, and I say the beatific vision, I often get blank blank stares. Many of us are simply unfamiliar with the term. Now to be sure, it's not hard to explain what I mean with the beatific vision, once I start talking to people about uh, God's promise, as articulated by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, but seeing God face to face, people usually say, all right, I see, I understand what you're talking about. Still, the initial reaction is telling. And the reason for it, I think, is that we've come to regard the ultimate telos or purpose for human beings as this-worldly rather than otherworldly. Or to put it differently, we've come to think of happiness, beatitude, as located in things, created objects, rather than in God himself, the creator. So if catechesis, and also theology more broadly, aims at our final happiness, we have to ask, what is that happiness? What does it, quote unquote, look like? Do we find happiness in the hereafter, in the continuation of creaturely things, or in God himself? Galatisus, after all, is about the proper shaping of our students' desire for happiness. And when they and perhaps also we as instructors set our desires on penultimate things rather than on the ultimate telos, we end up teaching and learning the wrong curriculum. So why is the notion of the beatific vision so unfamiliar to many of us? Why do so many people today Hardly treat the Pauline promise of a face to face vision of God as the greatest promise ever. I already mentioned that we've come to regard our ultimate aim as this worldly rather than otherworldly. You could also put it this way the beatific vision no longer fits within the broader framework of our lives it is the way in which we look at things and people and the way we treat them that make us shrug our shoulders about the beatific vision when we set our desires primarily on stuff rather than on god and when that approach to happiness dominates our cultural context the notion of gazing eternally upon God doesn't seem like a plausible description of happiness. And so the doctrine of the beatific vision is an ill fit with the plausibility structures of our society. In a largely materialist society, the beatific vision is simply an odd fit. Our society is materialist. And I don't just mean that we set our minds on the acquisition of this worldly goods, though that is an important part of it. But more foundationally, I mean that we've come to treat the world as consisting of purely material objects, objects that are unrelated to one another. We treat the world around us as consisting of atoms and nothing else we have, you could say, atomized the world. We have fragmented it. We typically think of the world around us, and perhaps even of ourselves, as consisting of numerous separate atoms or fragments. We can manipulate these atoms, these fragments, and connect them with each other in various ways. But in and of themselves, the various objects of the world are separate from each other, or so we tend to think. Such materialism implies there is no purpose to things. At least, there's no purpose to things apart from us imposing a purpose on them from the outside. In such a modern materialist world, the human will takes center stage. In modernity, we've come to think of ourselves as imposing rather than discovering the telos of created things. This approach of imposing rather than discovering the telos makes it impossible to treat the beatific vision as the ultimate end. In a strictly material universe, we're not made for anything let alone the beatific vision. The only purposes are purposes of our own making. But if our final happiness does actually consist of seeing God, then that is the purpose we're made for. And in that case, our job is simply to discover how it is that we can live our lives in harmony with that final end of the beatific vision. So here's what I think is the main thing that we're up against in catechesis. The main problem is that both as instructors and as students, we've imbibed an atomized, fragmented view of reality. We've done away with the belief that the purpose of things actually lies embedded, sacramentally embedded within them. Let me just repeat that. So we've done away with the belief that the purpose or the end, the us of things, actually already lies embedded, sacramentally embedded within them. You could also put it this way. From a Christian viewpoint, God has made the world and human beings in such a way that we naturally long for ultimate happiness. Eternal fellowship with God isn't out of sync with the way God has made us. No, He has made us for beatific vision. Human beings, and indeed all of creation, are connected already to God as our final goal using sacramental language, you could say, the sensible world is like a sacrament. Well, God himself, in Christ, is the reality that is really present throughout the created cosmos. God is the ultimate telos of the world, and he has made himself already really, sacramentally that is, present in it. Now, it is possible to think of ends or purposes in different ways. Just because someone rejects that the purpose is sacramentally embedded within things or within people, that doesn't mean such a person can no longer talk about purposes at all. It is possible, at least theoretically, to conceive of purposes as lying outside of things, our objects, and many people do. Still, that is, I think, not a very promising way of looking at ends. Once we say that the telos of a thing lies strictly outside of it, rather than being sacramentally embedded within it, the logical next step is to give up on teleology altogether. And the basic reason for this is that if the purpose of a thing is not inherent in its nature, then you and I are forced to decide, in an arbitrary fashion, what purpose to assign or to give it, or as I put it earlier, we need to impose it from the outside. The very best thing we can do in that case is subjectively to assign a purpose by an act of the will. The interminable conflicts to which this inevitably gives rise with numerous wills assigning numerous different telloi or purposes, the interminable conflicts that are the result have led to the postmodern resignation that we may as well give up on a shared vision of ends altogether a world that is solely defined by its material DNA, is a world, in the end, without purpose. Now, both Greek philosophy and the history of Christian thought, for the most part, have maintained that final causality, the notion of purpose, tell us is embedded in the nature of things. That is to say, things exist for a purpose. And this end is sacramentally embedded within the nature of things. Aristotle famously puts it this way in Book 2.8 of his, of his Physics. He writes, It is natural for a spider, it is natural for a spider, to make its web. And it also serves some purpose. Second example, if the fruit is the reason that plants grow leaves and nourishment the reason they grow their roots downwards rather than upwards, then it is clear that this type of causation is present in naturally occurring events and objects. It's a bit of a complex quotation, but basically what Aristotle is saying is that all natural realities have their purposes or ends built in. Christian theology operates no differently. At least traditionally, it has not. St. Thomas Aquinas describes the final cause as the first of all causes. And he adds that an agent whether rational or otherwise, is naturally inclined toward a particular end, finis. Aquinas was by no means an exception in Christian thought. (laughs) He speaks for a widespread Christian tradition whose outlook I would describe as sacramental. It takes final causes as being inherent in created objects. The identity, the reality, in sacramental sacramental language, the race, the reality of any given object is most fundamentally its aim, its telos. So the appearances that we see with our physical eyes, they don't determine what things ultimately are. Rather... It's the hidden reality that we can access with spiritual eyes that gives an object its true identity. Your and my identities too lie in the future. We are what we become. There's hugely hopeful implications for that, I think, that I won't unpack right now, but it strikes me as an important thing. Now, you and I live in a constructivist world. To the extent that we still do think of ends or purposes, we tend to conceive them of either freely chosen, in the case of human beings, or extraneously imposed upon objects, in the case of animals and plants, other objects. That is to say, to the extent that we can still think in terms of purpose, aim, we treat these as extrinsic, external to the nature of things, separate, from things themselves. The very term final cause strikes us as odd. We regard purposes as outcomes, not as causes. We look at purposes as endpoints that we have freely chosen, and that could easily have been different. But for the traditional Christian mindset, the final cause was actually a cause. That is to say, the finality of an object or of a human being lies in some manner embedded within it. And as such, you can say that the telos, the purpose, pulls or draws the thing or the person. And so in the 13th century, St. Thomas, for example, uses the language of rational appetite for human beings or natural appetite for other objects. For Aquinas and for the Christian tradition that he is an heir to, objects in humans have an appetite, appetitus, for the final end that is inherent in their nature. Now modernity has been loath to accept the idea that the telos of a thing is inherent in its nature. Francis Bacon, in his 1620 book, Novum Organum, was particularly disdainful of final causality. In defense of experimental science, he insisted, we ought to begin with the objects as we have them in front of us and as we access them with the senses. He rejected out of hand, therefore, the notion that ends belong to the nature of things. The notion of a final cause, he writes, is a long way from being useful. Note the change from the 13th century, here in the 17th. The notion of a final cause is a long way from being useful. In fact, it actually distorts the sciences, except in the case of human actions. René Descartes was similarly skeptical of the usefulness of final causality. Within a mechanistic universe, he could not see how final causes could possibly have a place. Descartes' epistemic humility, between quotation marks, comes to the fore in his 1641 Meditations on First Philosophy. Quote, Since I now know that my nature, my own nature, is very weak and limited, Whereas the nature of God is immense, incomprehensible, and infinite, I also know without more ado that He is capable of countless things whose actions are beyond my knowledge. And for this reason alone, I consider the customary search for final causes to be totally useless in physics. There is considerable rashness in thinking myself capable of investigating the purposes of God. Think back for a moment to Aristotle's spider, right? Useless in terms of physics, says Descartes. Even if things did have a final end embedded within them, Descartes was skeptical of our ability to figure out what it might be. We would need a God's eye view of reality to determine the end of things. So Baconian and Cartesian skepticism about final causality certainly has on the one hand served the interests of the experimental sciences and of technology, but it also implied a rejection of the Greek philosophical and Christian theological traditions. The rejection of a sacramental teleology The rejection of the notion that there is an inherent link between this worldly things, including humans, and their final end meant a break between the appearances of things and their purpose. Put differently, the 17th century experimental sciences discarded the Christian assumption of an inherent link, a sacramental one, between the sensible thing and its final goal. With the philosophical assumptions of Bacon and Descartes, people could no longer accept that we're meant for the beatific vision. Or, to put it differently, that it is natural for our rational appetite to long for the vision of God. It's not surprising that these 17th century developments went hand in hand with the rise of pure nature. In Latin, pura natura, in theology. We have come to treat natural things as independent, separate from God. Modernity has ended up, you could say, denying the very notion that the purpose of a thing is given with its nature. This has rendered the loss of the beatific vision all but inevitable. Since all purposes or ends are now humanly constructed rather than inherent in nature, many consider it outlandish to look for such ends beyond the pleasures that the material, sensible world affords. And wherever as Christians we have bought into such a materialist outlook, our catechesis suffers. We fail to guide our students to the ultimate end of the beatific vision. What then is the job of the catechist? If we keep in mind that the final end is somehow sacramentally present within the creature. then what does this mean for the teaching in our churches? Well, here I want to draw on a beautiful small booklet by the 20th-century Dominican theologian Marie Dominique Chenu. Chenu's 1957 book is called, in translation, that is, it's called, "Is Theology a Science?" Question mark. So, Chenu addresses here the question of the scientific character or not of theology. Now, Chenu was a lifetime student of Thomas Aquinas, and his understanding of what we do in theology depended in good part on his medieval mentor. Chenu's book is helpful also to us today as we're trying to wrap our minds again around the basics of catechesis together. What he writes about the task of theology, we can pretty much straightforwardly translate also to the job of catechesis. What then, according to Chenu, is the task of theology, or for us, of catechesis? Well, theology, comments Chenu, is, in his words, a participation in God's knowledge of himself. A participation in God's knowledge of himself. That's a hugely important starting point. The things we teach and learn in catechesis are a sharing, a participation in God's own self-knowledge. You see the sacramental link, right? When we learn the truth of the gospel, we're participating in the end, the telos, the final aim of God himself. The more deeply we come to know God, the more deeply we come to share sacramentally in our telos. such a sacramental view of catechesis means it is never simply about learning stuff. Pura natura, purely natural things. It's never about atoms or fragments. Also not atoms or fragments of knowledge, as if the things we learn in catechesis were simply facts, unrelated to each other, unrelated to God. I'm going to Put in putting a plug for memorization this afternoon in case you're wondering, (laughs) all right? But it's not just about facts. We're not just memorizing purely natural facts. The notion of pure nature lies at the root of modernity we just saw. And by contrast, a Christian understanding of knowledge treats it as participation in our final end. It's a first enjoyment of God himself. In catechism class, we're already coming face to face with God in Jesus Christ. According to Chenu, therefore, we can never, as he puts it, and I'm quoting him, reduce faith to a mere recitation of verbal and conceptual truths accepted in blind obedience. For Chenu, truth is a participatory entry of the believer into God's own knowledge of himself and of the world. Truth, in other words, is sacramental in character. This implies that whenever a believer participates in divine knowledge, in Latin, scientia, such knowledge, such scientia, is. Such knowledge or scientia is theology. Theology, as well as karkesis is about initiation, therefore. It is about an artisan or a master craftsman leading or apprenticing his students. Theology, explains Chenu, involves, and I'm quoting him, involves an initiation, or to use the words of Dionysius, 6th century monk, the theologian is a mystagogue, an initiator, right, catechesis, as mystagogy. The theologian is a guide leading people to heavenly participation. Catechism instruction aims at sharing, sorry, catechism instruction has everything to do with knowledge, but is not a knowledge of pure facts. Catechism instruction instead aims at sharing in the telos, of God's own self-knowledge. It aims at the beatific vision. Catechesis is about mystagogy, as Shani puts it. Mystagogy is simply a fancy term describing initiation into sacred things. In this case, initiation into the life of God himself as he has made it known in Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about how knowledge functions and about memorization, as I mentioned this afternoon. But I want to anticipate anticipate some of that by talking briefly about the way that Chenu describes the relationship between faith and reason, or mystery and concept. He devotes two of the seven chapters of his book to faith and mystery, respectively. In chapter 2, entitled Understanding the Faith, Chenu argues that faith is pregnant with theology. This means for him that faith rests in God, not just in concepts about God. Chenu beautifully expresses the aim of theology when he comments, Consider first the fertility of the object, In a revelation where the light of faith puts me on a level with his transcendence and initiates me into his mystery and his incarnate mercy, the living God, the living truth, becomes for me not a mere mental object. He offers himself as a gift from the Spirit in an ever more intimate communion welcomed by love. So for Chenu, The aim is intimate communion with God, which he expresses rather evangelically, I would think, as an interpersonal relationship. And so the next chapter, which he calls Theology and Mystery, Chenu reiterates, theology depends on the life of faith, and it is really an expression of one's spirituality. He writes, it is in prayer and adoration and in the profoundest sense of the word devotion, that theology is born and lives. If faith is the soil, you could say, in which theology grows, mystery is the aim. So even if Chinu does indeed speak about God as the object of theology, He's cautious about using that term with reference to God. The very word object, he writes, the very word object is philosophically awkward. It doesn't fit the absolute, capital A, to, a le- to the letter. God is, in fact, literally supernatural. And therefore, even when this communion of love, which his grace gives me, is fully ra- realized, God will remain incomprehensible until I meet him face to face. And uh, just a side note, even at that point, God, I think, remains incomprehensible. All right, so Chenu recognized that catechesis is about mystagogy, about initiation. And so God is not an object, as we commonly use that term. God instead is the one in whose self-knowledge we share ever more deeply as through our carcasses we come to know him more thoroughly. Now, Chenu did not focus on, on faith and mystery because he had a low view of reason, concept. In fact, we could describe his book as a defense of theology as a science. Is theology a science, question mark? Chenu's answer, yes. Theology, and also catechesis, does have to do with knowledge. But when Chenu uses the term science, scientia, he doesn't have in mind our contemporary notions of natural sciences, which are are grounded in an empirical method. That's not what theology does. Chenu has in mind primarily Thomas's notion of science, scientia, or knowledge of God. Scientia simply means knowledge. And as we've already seen, Chenu regards this scientia or knowledge as a participation in God's own self-knowledge. Science, therefore, for Chenu, was mystical in character, At the same time, this mystical character of theology did not preclude a significantly rational element. The focus on faith and mystery for Thomas did not come at the cost of reason and concept. While theology was mystagogy or initiation, it also involved rigorous learning The paradoxical combination of these seemingly mutually exclusive elements was possible because of the incarnation, according to Aquinas. Chenu writes as follows. The same law that once made us ask for the incarnation of God's word in human words and on the stage of history now makes us accept in full the whole body of knowledge which this incarnation must imply. Theology is at one, he writes then, theology is at one with the theandric mystery, the God-human mystery of the Word of God, the Word made flesh. There alone can it dare to find confidence in the coherence of faith and reason. The Word becomes flesh, and faith must be expressed in rational concepts, analogously speaking. So Chenu looks to the theandric mystery of the incarnation, the God-human mystery, and observes that in that mystery, coming together of the supernatural with the natural world, and the coming together of faith and reason, is what allows us to do theology together. And so faith is not simply a supernatural thing, strangely out of place in our everyday lives. Yes, God's gift is total gift, which comes to us from the outside. But this total gift, writes Chenu, does become human property, as he puts it. It talks about faith as a human habit, a virtue that becomes, he writes, embedded in human nature. That's why I used the term embedded earlier. It becomes embedded in human nature. Faith has its dwelling within human reason, he comments. And it is therefore entitled to theologize. And because theology has its home in our rational minds, it naturally strives toward an understanding of the faith. If we're not interested in learning about God, we should question how much faith we actually have. Medieval theologian St. Anselm was right, according to Chenu, when he defined faith as a quest for understanding Fides querens Intellectum. Studying theology is, he writes, the healthy act of a faith whose appetite, think final causality, whose appetite, like a physical appetite, is the measure of a healthy constitution. So if for St. Thomas Aquinas, human beings have a rational appetite for their final end. So that the telos lies embedded in our very being as humans and draws us to itself. Then for Chenu you could say it is natural for faith to have, or rather to long for a deeper rational understanding of the things of God. Chenu applauded, therefore, even the medieval rise of scholastic theological systems, understanding by the word system, as he puts it, a logical whole, planned architecturally, in which various elements are so disposed as to knit together and buttress the entire structure. Now, it did cause against elevating particular systems, and here he was presumably thinking especially of the Thomas system, as the one in only system that uh, that one could possibly have in the church. There's a certain relativity of systems. Nonetheless, systematizing the faith witnesses to the health of an ardent faith commitment. Catechesis is mystagogy. And true mystagogy, true initiation, loves to know more about the self-knowledge of God. Shenoud tried to integrate mystery and concept, faith and reason. He was suspicious of any dualism between scientia and sapientia, knowledge and wisdom. On the one hand, he recognized that a straightforward reduction of, of theology to science or knowledge would be problematic. A science he writes, holds no jot of mystery. Yet, on the other hand, Cheney was equally unhappy with limiting theology to wisdom. He even on that score critiqued St. Augustine um, because he felt that the Bishop of Hippo was too much focused just on sapientia, just on wisdom, as lying outside the sciences of this world. The faithful theologian And we could add the faithful catechist tries to reach the aim of wisdom precisely by means of knowledge. The highest aim of catechesis is no doubt mystical participation in the mystery of God's own self-knowledge. In no way bypassing human modes of knowing God, the catechist aims ultimately at the unity of wisdom itself. Cheneau's 1957 book was a plea for unity, unity of the discipline of theology. Scholarly learning and mystagogy, or initiation, belong together. So do science and wisdom, dogmatic theology and spiritual theology. Together, these complements have their origin in the church and in the faith of the church. Together, they are shaped in and by the tradition of the church. And together, they are nourished by Holy Scripture. Together, they participate in the divine knowledge of the truth. Now, Chenu's guiding light here was undoubtedly Thomas Aquinas. It was Chenu's hope that by restoring this unity of faith and reason, mystery and concept, along Aquinas' lines, theology would recover its role of initiating the community of faith into sacramental participation of the divine life. Our hope today should be the same as we reflect on the function of catechesis. It is about participation in the divine life. It's about participation in God as our final end. Now, this is not about isolating ourselves from the world. It also doesn't bypass, therefore, the life of Christian virtue. Contemplation always leads to action. And so, catechesis aims not only at contemplation and enjoyment of God, but also at the moral life of the student. Chenu's booklet doesn't say much about the active life, except for a brief lament about the divorce between dogmatic and moral theology. But I would be doing Chenu an injustice, I think, if I failed to mention his deep desire nonetheless to hold these two together. Chenu was not just an academic theologian. He was also deeply concerned with the plight of factory workers in Paris. He was an activist, engaged in the so-called worker-priest movement. He was suspect of Marxist tendencies. Now, to many, this involvement in the socio-economic issues of the day seemed completely out of line with Chenu's research as a medieval scholar. And Chenu himself joked that people would sometimes think there are two Chenus, one old medievalist, who does paleography and then this scoundrel who runs in the lines of fire of the Holy Church. But Chenu himself would argue against this. This perception, he argued, rests on misunderstanding. From the beginning of his career, he had been convinced that contemplation and action go hand in hand. Throughout his writings, he insists on the unity of the two. In fact, Though he was all about mystagogy, Chenu sometimes expressed hesitation even about the language of contemplation. He was nervous that it might lead to disdain of the active life. He writes, there is a sort of snobbery in contemplative life. And I, who, when I entered the order, the Dominican order, had experienced so strongly the contemplative life and its absoluteness, I thank God I I did not lose my bearings when I was in the vortex. (laughs) Nonetheless, he writes, the contemplation-action duo still seems to me insufficient to account for the reality. It is not part of the gospel vocabulary. One never finds the distinction between contemplation and action in the gospel. This distinction is applied to the episode of Martha and Mary. But this is a dislocation of the episode. In other words, he writes, I give priority to this immersion in the world without casting oneself into it so as to lose one's identity as a Christian. So he's concerned with snobbery, stressing the importance that contemplation give way to action. Now the theologian, for Shenu then, has a duty to get his hands dirty. I recognize the evangelical students that I teach in Chenu's comments. They too want nothing more passionately than for theology to serve the social and economic needs of the community around them. And to be sure, that is exactly the kind of service we are called to offer. Contemplation does indeed give way to action. However, the obverse is also true. Action is the road to contemplation. The life of virtue is about participation in the divine life. Chenu, therefore, overdoes it. I think the Mary and Martha episode actually does tell us a great deal about the relationship between contemplation and action. And our final end, the eschaton, is going to be all contemplation, not action. So contemplation has a certain priority. Still, knew rightly does insist that immersion in the world is the natural outcome of the theandric mystery of the Incarnation. As long as we're in this world, if contemplation does not give way to action, this means we're simply engaged in snobbery. When we apprentice our students in catechesis, we must always have one eye on their moral formation. The journey of initiation is therefore a never-ending cycle from action to contemplation back to action and to contemplation again until the sacramental journey of the theological discipline will have reached its fullness of the real presence of the beatific vision. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Hans. I'll, I'll have uh, Father Sean and Father Lee uh, both stand and, and give their responses. I'll also invite you to ask questions that you have as well, and, and we'll engage in this dialogue together. so thank you guys. You can go ahead together, yeah.
2: Um, I think I was led to reflect uh, in reading over this this talk um, on the problem of pragmatism in the church today. Uh, that we we seem to have this well, the best way I can put it is that people will people will look at this at this community we have here in Christ Church and they'll say, "How did you do it?" And the answer I will often sheepishly give is, "Well, well God did it." <laughs> but I, I also want to say that we we expressly avoided pragmatism um, uh, by saying that what Christ Church would be about would be about um, leading people into the mystery of God. Um, and I, I think, Sean, you share that um, clearly, um, that, that this, this actually sets churches apart today. Um, I think I, I loathe going to clergy training conferences where uh, they're, they're always wanting to pitch some new idea, like... Just all these strategies for growth and all these things. Oh, you have to do this and you have to do that. And, and really at the heart of it is that even the research bears out that, that churches that, that lead people into um, the mysteries and lead them to, uh, to know God uh, and, and cooperate with um, who God has made them to be um, wind up becoming very successful. <laughs> but it's not because they aim at success. It's because they aim at that. Um, I, I th-
3: thank you for that was that's so much I'm not sure which part of this to <laughs> actually engage with and so I'll just start from kind of earlier on in the lecture one of the things that struck me um, was the question if, if the telos um, of, of catechesis is the beatific vision is union with God then how would that actually show up in our language of invitation hmm. like Sunday announcements for instance it often sounds like hey, if you're into this sort of thing, if you want to learn more about theology, or uh, if, if you're a grad student, or if you don't understand the faith and you want some more understanding, which, um, to your point, if, if, that, if that's really our honest telos here is a pure, I don't think it's pure, um, but an intellectualism or even just an understanding, um, then, we're missed, then the curriculum gets malformed and we're actually missing the point of catechesis. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you, Hans, wondering. So, how would this change announcement language uh, for catechesis? Um, and it might sound like, "Do you desire to enjoy God more deeply? Do you do you long for a deeper union with God?" And people might think, "Oh, they're talking about like, you know, a, a prayer vigil or maybe whole Eucharist." But then to say catechesis, um, I think, is actually like a really profound. Uh, it's, it's subtle, but it's a very profound shift in just the language. I think it had, mm. practically impacts um, our language. And so I, I'm even wondering, like I'm rolling back the, the tape in my own newsletters, my Sunday announcements, how we recruit or bring attention to um, catechesis, not as this like extracurricular that if you're into that sort of thing, but something that's central <laughs> to the life of a Christian pursuing a deeper union with God. And not just union in like a, a mystical sense, but even uh, an enjoyment of God. Mm. And I think um, that also carries over into, as I'm imagining myself teaching, doing catechesis, enjoyment isn't just um, part of the telos, but again, it shapes our methodology. I think you can tell the difference when you have a catechist who enjoys uh, teaching, mm-hmm. and who it's contagious, right? You've, I mean, I've had a class with you, and you, you enjoy the, the stuff you're talking about, the things you're teaching, and so all of a sudden you find yourself being really into the beatific vision yourself, and you're not even sure what it is yet, you know, in this class, but you enjoy it, so there's this kind of contagious element. I know what it is now, <laughs> at first. Um, likewise though, I hope I do. The, it, it is still incomprehensible to some degree, but to, of what I know. Um, but likewise, in catechesis, I think enjoyment can be part of the fabric of our methodology, which leads us away from kind of a utilitarian approach to just um, facts, a list of facts but a, a, um, a very playful uh, wandering and wondering, right? With God. Well, the way I've talked to you about this, I'm like Lee, uh, and I thought my first, my first go at catechesis, I thought, okay, what is this really? These aren't the questions my people have. They wanna know about things like um, sexuality, <laughs> what is confession, what is, what is like the sacrament? What does that really mean? They wanna know about like, should we be Republican or Democrat? You know, those kinds of things. And, and I remember Lee saying, just, just start it, Sean, just start it. So we'd start it, and we, I found that we couldn't help but detour um, and wander around and invite questions. And then I realized, oh, this isn't detouring. This is part of the enjoyment of, of that deeper understanding of what it means to be gods and to be with him, even in these political, economic, or practical places of human life.
2: Well, it reminds me, St. Augustine was once asked, there's this wonderful tractate called um, the Catechizandis Ritibus where he responds to this question by, I, I think he's a deacon, but he says, you know, well, how should I go about catechesis? I mean, what's the best way to do it? And Augustine says, yeah, don't worry about that. Essentially. <laughs> he, he says, uh, cultivate delight. Mm. Um, work really hard to enjoy it. Um, and, and he says it's almost like this. It's like, it's like giving someone a tour of your hometown. Um, what is mundane to you, what is normal to you, what you walk by every day without even thinking about, you now have the, you're, you're taking temporarily the perspective of an, of an outsider uh, so that you can initiate someone into this mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is essential for, for doing catechesis well is to get very excited about it. And, and part of the, I think part of the, the enemy's trick lately has been to make catechesis something which is looked upon as boring and dull. Hmm. I mean, I think I use this word catechesis a lot and people would say, well, that sounds like that, what they used to do way back when. And the, you know, they have images of nuns with rulers in their hands. <laughs> uh, and and I, I just say, whoa, 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 slow down. Um, uh, so much more rich, so much more uh, uh, exciting. But that's where
3: where mystagogy, I think, is a really helpful term. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just uh, instruction, but it's the initiation into the mysteries, into the sacred things, and the excitement that comes along with
2: with all of that. Well, I think this is really important, too, is that um, one of the things that cultivates that delight is leading the uninitiated into the mysteries. So having in our catechesis offerings uh, people who are completely unchurched, who have a completely uh, maybe pagan background. (laughs) And and, um, uh, that's that's often very helpful because it it does several things. I mean, William Harmless used to say that that the the uninitiated serve as icons of conversion to the whole congregation. Mm -hmm. Um, He was absolutely right. I think today we have this very problem, and here in Waco we have this problem of many, many, many Christians who have not been initiated into the mysteries. And so Mr. serves in that way to say, um, you, you've been, you've, and in many cases now decreasingly, you know, you used to be able to trust that an evangelical knew the scriptures, and now you can't even trust that. So <laughs> it, it, takes this, it takes this immense work, and I think um, uh, all that is to say that, that uh, if we view it pragmatically... As if to say how can we gain members for our church and how can we, how can we bring people into the life of our congregation how also can we how can we make good volunteers is often the question <laughs> um, well my answer to that is catechesis hmm. but it's a, it's, a, it's a byproduct of the main right. of the main telos, and I think that's important to and I'm, I'm thankful to Hans for bringing that into view I
0: want to invite any further uh, questions to Junius for any either Hans or
1: Yeah, great. Can you repeat the very last part? The one? So, so one of the the of understood as <sac-1> Yeah. understood Yeah. Um, hope I'm understanding your question well. Um, let me give it, give it a, a stab.
0: Hans, Hans, maybe you could rephrase the question for the. Uh...
1: Yes. So, uh, considering the the, w- the way in which we talk about mystery uh, today, as not the way that I've talked about mystery in this in this talk, uh, but mystery in, in a much more general way, uh, how would I um, how would I articulate the difference between mystery on the one hand as entry into the life of God himself? Uh, and on the other hand, uh, mystery into the deep truths of the gospel, right? Something to that effect. Um, I wouldn't distinguish them. I would say they're one and the same. Um, There there is a conceptual difference, and the conceptual difference is an important one. Um, It's it's different to talk about truths that we can articulate in human language, and about God, who's one, (laughs) The one is multiple, many truths, God is one. And so there's, there's for us, from our perspective here, a difference between mysteries as, say, we talk about the mystery of God, or the mystery of Christ, I think that's what you're after, right? Mystery of Christ, or um, at least that's how we used to talk about doctrines, right? And sometimes we still do, um, and, and I love that language. But I think what that language does, actually, is, is to say, you know what? This is not just a concept we're talking about. It's not just about the doctrine of God uh, as, as a conceptual system, or about the doctrine of the atonement, or whatever, it be, whatever the, the topic may be. But when we learn about these things, these topics, we're entering into God himself. God is truth, capital T. All these human articulations of truths Doctrine of God, doctrine of the sacraments, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, they, they are a small human way of entering into God himself. So they're not something different. Um, they're smaller. They're more preliminary. They come with all sorts of bumblings. And, and sometimes you think, oh, that's a poor doctrine of God. <laughs> right? When you're saying, well, this, this author just didn't do a very good job. Um, but these, what, these, what, these mis, what these articulations do, these doctrines do, is they enter into the capital T truth of God himself. So you can never separate them from my understanding. These mysteries of these various doctrines and the mystery that I've been talking about for the most part here as initiation into God's life himself. Um, human truths are, are approximations of and our our, our small entries into God himself. Um, What what that does, I think, is two things. It it protects us against relativism, as if to say, well, you know, our our, our doctrines are, are, they're just, you know, person X holding forth, right? I don't need to listen to that, it doesn't really matter. Um, No, the the point is that there is actually a a norm, namely truth itself, the truth who has revealed himself in Christ through the tradition of the scriptures and uh, into which this author aims to lead us by means of his doctrines. Um, So it it protects us against against relativism and also protects us against, um, well, intellectual snobbery, the very opposite, right? A dogmatism in the negative sense of the term dogmatism. Uh sense that we've got to hold on that truth. Well, no, you don't actually, because God is incomprehensible. So we so we're only entering into the life of God, and our truths, our articulations of the truth, are simply small ways of 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 gesturing at and 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 speaking about um, cap, uh, capital. See truth itself.